Well, I was thankful, um, I was really thankful this last week as I was going to my cousin's wedding last week, and um, I was really thankful for our tech team and for all those who do so much behind the scenes and uh, for Pastor Chase sharing last week, and, and um, so it was fun to, I didn't get to watch the whole service online, but I got to see parts of it because, you know, I don't have the unlimited data plan, so I can't stream the whole thing, um, so I could catch bits and pieces, but but I'm just thankful for that, but I I... I was thinking as I was um, prepping for today about a question. What drives us to do what we do? What motivates us? Right, we live in a unique time in human history in which it's a time in which there is information overload. There was a day when all news was local. Right? You might go to the feed store, you might go into town, there might be you might just find out all news was local. Wasn't a bad day, by the way. Then there came a day when which not only you get your local news, but you might be able to get a newspaper from a major city nearby. If you lived in the major city, it was your local paper, but otherwise you could get this, the paper from the largest city nearby. Then you might be able to get a national paper sent to your house. And, and so it was local news and national paper. And then there was the nightly news that was new and was local and national, right? That was a new thing. It was just a, like a one-hour shot. And then there came a day when there was cable news, and that was added. And then there came a day when there was 24-hour cable news, and so you could get news all day long. And then there came a day, this day, in which you could not only get 24-hour cable news, but you could go online and you could read about all kinds of stuff. And, and you came to a point where you weren't even sure what was opinion and what was fact, what had been researched with journalistic integrity, and what was just someone's thoughts and we don't know the difference. In fact, um, one of the fascinating things right now that Christian sociologists and psychiatrists and psychologists are talking about is the way in which conspiracy theories are running rampant among especially the church, which is concerning, by the way. Why? Because partial truth still sounds like truth. Partial truth sounds appealing. There's a fascinating book, and I, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the title, but, but written about the KGB um, from, you know, the Soviet Union, and their, their misinformation campaign from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. really is fascinating, because they, they would sow just, just seeds of untruth in newspapers. They would pay. They would, all kinds of stuff would happen, and, and, and it would just permeate cultures, and then all of a sudden, you'd have people mad at each other over something that was never true to begin with. In fact, China tried just this, this year, right? There was this article they found they traced back to China in which they talked about that this coronavirus actually came from fecal matter in Brazil. And then when they began to research into that, like, no, it didn't. It actually came from Chinese organizations saying it came from fecal matter in Brazil. Oh, how do we know it's true? How do we know where to find sources of information? How do we know what story should shape our life? How do we begin to do this? And see, here's what people have found over and over and over again. Fear and partial truth can drive us to whatever means people want. And most of us respond out of fear. Here's an example. When we were kids, why did we most of the time listen to our parents? Because we were afraid of the consequences if we didn't. Fear. When we went to school, why did... We do what the teacher told us. Well, we were going home, maybe, but right, we, 
We knew that if we would get in trouble at school or our grades would be poor, we were afraid of the consequences. What do we make sure to do what our bosses tell us? Because we know at some level, if we're not careful, they have the power over us that we can lose our job, so we are afraid. In fact, some people even become a part of a religion over fear what might happen if they don't. You and I live from a unique story. We live from a story that's based on love or fear. It's based on desperation or hope, redemption or destruction. News stations, politicians, marketing experts, they all know that fear is one of the primary drivers of our lives. In fact, don't believe me, take a minute. Pick, pick your favorite politician, whoever he or she may be, and listen to their language. What you'll find is a steady stream of us and them. Them is always bad. Whoever them is, them is not good. Us, we're good. Did you know if it wasn't for them, we would have less things to be afraid about? We would be all be safer or better or whatever? I don't care where you're on the political spectrum. Every politician does this. They pit us versus them. If it wasn't for them, divisive language leads to fear. Always. Because if it wasn't for them, our life would be better. This is what's so hard for us because we all make decisions based on something. In fact, there was a study years ago that found that 85% of people, 85% of people make decisions out of the seeking of pleasure or the avoidance of pain, also known as fear. So we make almost every decision in our life, 85% of people make a decision out of avoiding pain seeking pleasure. Now, what might happen, what might happen if we made our decisions out of the other 15%? What if we were the other 15%? And what might that be that we make the decision from? And here's the answer. What if our decision-making stemmed from the place of love? I know, I know, you're saying to me today, well, if I make every decision from the place of love, that is not rational. You're right. It isn't rational. Love is not rational, but it is right. Love is not rational, but it is right. This series, we've been talking about two particular guys and the stories they wrote, the letters they wrote to the early Jesus followers. We're talking about Peter and John, two guys who were fishermen, two guys who were average Joes, two guys who were just like you and I. And fishermen were not wealthy people. In that day, not really wealthy people in this day. But yet, 2,000 years later, we're talking about two guys who fished. Not about some unique way of fishing that they taught us all, but we're talking about their lives that were radically transformed by impacting the world through the love of Jesus. Somewhere along the way, their decision-making shifted from being fear-based to being based on the love of Jesus ultimately led to Peter's crucifixion and John being stranded on an island as an old man. And yet they write all the time. And the writing will find over and over again this idea of love. We're looking today at 1 John chapter 4. And in these 15 verses we look at, John uses the word love 27 times in 15 verses. 
I can tell you what John's writing about, if you're curious. It's love. It's pretty simple. It's pretty direct. It's pretty clear. And John's whole goal is that people come to know the man he had come to know, the one that he gave up everything, always willing to follow to the ends of the earth for that sake. This, this is what John writes. Your friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world. We are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. One who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. There's a lot of love in those verses. Again and again, John reiterates the same thing. As I said, 27 times there's a form of the word love there. Why? He wants us to know this, and this is what he begins with. In verse 7, love comes from God and love leads to God. In fact, he wants us to know that love is a continual activity. It is not a one-time event. So love is not a one-time event. It is a way of life. What would happen if we began to live from a place of love? This is what verse 8 says, that if we know God, then we know love, because God is love. And then these two verses, 9 and 10, that talk about this, that talk about what love looks like, personified. Love looks like Jesus. Jesus who laid down his life. Jesus, who is a sacrifice for the sake of others, this, this is who God is. John wants us to know that Jesus epitomizes what it looks like for love. This love, it's totally undeserved. It's not because you and I have earned it. It's because of the character of God. It holds nothing back. It is always for the sake of others, not for the sake of self. This is who God is. 
Then in verse 9, I think something important happens. It says that Jesus is the bringer of life. Existence and life are not the same thing. So again, existence and life are not the same thing. God doesn't want us to sleepwalk through life, to live just existing in this life, but to find a purpose and a reason for living. And what John wants us to know is here is your purpose. If you're questioning what it might be, love people, period. And you'll find a value intrinsically within you that this is what you're called to live for. In fact, um, verse 9, we get this kind of cool little thing that, It happens among us. Love happens among us, like among people, and also within us. So it is both corporate and personal. It's not either or, it's both. It can't be either or because that's not the character and nature of God. God is relational, and God is relationally in love with us. And we see verses 7 through 10 kind of point out this sacrificial way of God, that this is who Jesus is. And so the question you and I have to answer is this. Will we accept the love of God? And if so, will we love others? That's the question. Why does that matter? I mean, this is what verse 12 spells out for us. It says, it's by love that God is known. It's by love that God is known. Not by our opinions, not by our politics, not by our jobs, not by our families, but love. Love is how God is known. And what John makes clear all throughout this, and really all throughout his writings, is that God does something significant for us, in us and through us. He offers up his spirit, his presence, his love. I love these words from verse 16. Those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. And one of the cool things that we find throughout the New Testament is especially the, all the letters that we find, not the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but the rest of the New Testament we find this particular phrase. Over and over again it says, in Christ. Not Christ in us, although both are real. It's like 163 times it says the words in Christ, and only a handful of times it says Christ in us. Now, why does that matter so much? Because in the words of, of the gospel writer of Matthew, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Find rest in me. So it's not that we have to find rest in ourselves. We find our rest in Jesus. We find our rest, our hope there. That for us is powerful. So what does that look like lived out for us? It looks like this. And here's a, here's a quote that I think is helpful. Love incarnate, incarnate means in flesh, indwelled, in person, us, people. Love incarnate must be the badge that the Christian community wears. The sign of not only who they are, but of who God is. Verse 19 says, we love because he first We love because he first loved us. He loved us first, and so that's what becomes so powerful. But what happens when love comes in, then fear leaves? Perfect love drives out fear. This is what John wants us to really understand. And what happens when we take seriously then this idea? Well, then we look at verses 7, 11, 
20 and 21, and then we begin to recognize this. The love of God is seen in the love of people. They are indissolubly connected, and you can't separate them. They can't be taken apart. So the measure that we love God is the measure we see in the way loving others. So when people go, ah, when we sound hateful, we can't love God. So maybe I'd say it this way. If you're not loving your neighbor, you're not loving God. And who's your neighbor? That person you like the least. I mean, they may even live next door, but they don't always. Sometimes the person we like the least, they live in some random place. But, but loving our neighbor, if you're not loving your neighbor, you're not loving God. And so I mentioned fear, and I, I skipped over it for just a little bit on purpose. So when I was growing up, these T-shirts were really popular. They said, no fear. Do you guys remember those T-shirts? They were a big deal for a little while. I mean, I, for some of you, you're like, you're younger than I thought. Some of you are like, you're older than I thought, because I've never heard of this, right? I'm like, this is how this works. But these just said, no fear. And they have all these things about, like, well, I don't fear. In other words, over and over again, it was about how you can be, you can out-tough fear. Some of them, like, yeah. Except here's the thing. No matter how tough you are, there's always somebody tougher. No matter how tough I am, there's always someone tougher than me. And when you think you're the toughest, because at some point, right, there is the toughest guy, but then someone else becomes more tough than them at some point. You get older. That's what happens. You might have been the toughest guy ever when you're young, but someday you'll be old or you'll die. And then you're not very tough. No fear. I like the idea. But here's the problem with fear. When it comes to the Christian faith, fear might lead us to want to avoid hell. And so I might become a Christian just to avoid hell. Because honestly, as a kid, hell scared the hell out of me. And so I wanted to follow Jesus because I didn't like the idea of if, if hell was real, I didn't want anything to do with it. Did you know that fear isn't sustaining? Fear is not sustainable. Fear might lead us to make a decision at one point, but fear long-term is not sustainable enough for us to continue in one direction. Here's what I mean. When we were kids, we were afraid of what our parents might do to us. You know what? There comes a day I don't live with my mom and dad anymore. I'm really not afraid of what my parents may or not, may not do in my life. Someday, that fear... And if fear is the only relationship we have parent to child, what happens eventually? We no longer have a relationship. I don't know very many people, with a few exceptions, uh, there are a few exceptions, who still with their parents later in life have a fear-based relationship. Because it's a fear-based relationship, it's not a good one. You may go to the obligatory family function, but you're not really engaged in relationship. Fear doesn't keep us connected to our parents when we get older. And if we're parents, fear will not keep us connected to our kids when they're older. But love might. Love might just do that. In fact, I'd say it this way. Fear might lead us to not do to others what we don't want done to us. But love leads us to do for others what we wish someone would do for us. Like, that's really good, by the way. Right? One's the golden rule that Jesus talked about. The other one's not the golden rule. One's about avoidance, right? 
I won't do to them what I don't want done to us. Like, okay, so I don't, but I'm not on the hook for anything. Do you catch that? If I don't do for someone what I don't want done to me, I don't have to do anything. I can do nothing, and that's okay. But if I'm supposed to love other people in the way I would want to be loved, that requires activity and action and work. And it's way harder. But fear is not adequate enough for us to have a relationship with Jesus that is life-giving and life-sustaining or to find our purpose. I love these words from William Barclay. It would be quite inadequate to think of salvation as mere deliverance from the punishment of hell. People need to be saved from themselves. They need to be saved from the habits which have become their chains. They need to be saved from their temptations. They need to be saved from their fears and their anxieties. They need to be saved from their follies and mistakes. In every case, Jesus offers salvation. He enables us to face the present and to meet eternity. This is the story of Jesus. Radical, redeeming, extravagant love. This is the invitation to have a story that shapes all our life. Not partial truths that you might find. Not conspiracy theories. But the resurrected Jesus who offers us this invitation to let love be the defining characteristic of our life for us to make everything filter through that. And what might happen if our life began to be defined by extravagant love? Like I said, it isn't rational. And so I love this story that Henry Nouwen tells. Um, Henry Nouwen tells a story about this man who, this old man who goes to go meditate down by the river every day. And he would go meditate by the river and and one day, the flood was up, so the water's high. And so he sees this scorpion on this tree struggling to not drown. And the old man reaches out to grab the scorpion, not let him drown. The scorpion keeps stinging him. And the man keeps trying to pull this scorpion up. And, and finally, a passerby goes, what are you doing? Don't you know it is in the nature of the scorpion to continue to hurt you, to punish you? And the old man looks at the passerby and says, yes, but it's always in my nature to save. You think his nature has to define mine. See, this is the challenge for us. Are we willing to be so defined by extravagant, radical love, or are we going to find ourselves drawn into whatever someone else's nature might be? When love is the defining value of our life, we don't measure ourselves in relation to others. We measure ourselves in relation to Jesus. So we ask the question how might Jesus love in this situation? What words would come out of his mouth? I can tell you this. Test me on this. Go through the Gospels, read the words of Jesus. See the times when he's angry? He's always angry at religious people or churchgoers of his day. He's basically never angry at the non-religious people. What's that mean? It means careful what you post on social media. Unless you only have Christian friends, be very careful what you say. 
Be careful when you generalize and you put people in corners and you say them, uh, we're back to the us versus them again. Jesus invites us to see this radically different, this new way of living. See, God and Jesus is putting the world right. And here's how he often does it. He begins by putting us right. The whole point of what John's trying to get across in this entire letter is this. Listen, the world is chaos. But there's a place that you and I can go in which we begin to find rest. There's a place that you and I can go that our life begins to make sense. There's a place that you and I can go that we can begin to live in such a way that love is the defining characteristic of our life. And when we do that, we'll embrace one of the values we have here, extravagant love. Extravagant love is seen in radical forgiveness and extreme vulnerability and sacrificial living. It's seen in living in such a way that heaven comes to earth. It's living in such a way that we might recognize someone may even sting us as the scorpion would, but we're going to continue to do what's in our nature, and our nature has been radically redefined by the love of Jesus. And so what might happen? What might happen if you and I took seriously these words of John in which he says, listen, God is love. And if you're willing to live in this way, that he will abide in you and you can abide in him and you'll find that the love of God can redefine your life and your heart and even your imagination. And if you and I will live in that place, if you and I will live in that place, the literally it's upside down. Like I said at the beginning, it is not rational. Love is not rational. Love does what is irrational. That's what love is. Right? We do crazy things for our kids, right? You'll go to places you never want to go. You'll do things you never want to do. You'll buy stuff that you know is a piece of junk, but you do it because you love your kid. Love is not rational. Lord, I've come to believe with all my being, what I think the Scripture spells out again and again, love is so not rational, but it is We can be driven by fear or pleasure, or we can be driven by love. Which story we don't allow to shape our life the most? And here's the radical thing about God. He says, I don't care what your past has been. I don't care who you've been or what you've done, but here's how much I love you. That if you'll say, hey, ah, Jesus, I believe you really did live and die for me, but you came back to life, which is an unbelievable part of the story. And in fact, you invite me to live in this way in which love redeems my life and my heart, even my mind. And if that's true, God, will you, will you redeem even me? And I see what's broken in the world around us, and I can't fix the whole world, but I, I can ask you to fix me. And then maybe I can live in such a way that love will be evident because God is seen in our love, the way we love our neighbor, because the measure of the way which we love God is seen in the way we love our neighbor. So maybe if that defines us, then we begin to see the world look radically different, not because we share our opinions or our politics or our social media posts, but because love has redefined our life and our heart. So what it might happen if we begin to love our neighbor? In fact, what might happen if we took Jesus' words seriously begin to love our enemy? That might literally change the world, change the Roman Empire. might just change our world as well. And so here's the invitation for you and I today. 
We could live from a story of love and redemption, or we could live from a story of fear and destruction. Which story will you and I choose to live from today? Father, you help us to stay as we pray to leave this place, as we think about what it looks like to live from love, to recognize that your son loves us enough to lay himself down for us in sacrificial, selfless, life-giving ways. And John runs out of words to express love, and so he just uses it again and again and again. And we find that even using the word love is so inadequate because we don't know how to articulate the depth of God's love for us. We find often that we are without words. But there's something compelling in which history has been radically changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we pray today that we as your people might begin to let a story of love reshape and redefine our very lives. And Father, may we put our trust in the love of Jesus today. It's in his name that we pray.